This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. I've got a uh, shockingly boring story for you tonight. And before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to thank all of our wonderful brand new sponsors on Patreon.com. 
where you can go and pledge $2 a month to get a completely ad-free version of the show. So, this week's patrons, Catherine Araujo, Elise Betcher, Mia Jamieson, Jessica Meyer, Jada Perry, Tammy Sloat, Megan Danzy, Emily Parsons, and Lady Iron. Thank you all so, so, so much for being patrons of this show. It really, really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the names that I just read, they're brand new patrons on patreon.com, which is a website where you can go and directly support creators of the work they like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has uh, helped you get a better night's rest, then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. Like I said, um, at $2 a month, you get access to um, the totally ad-free version of Sleepy, all 200-whatever episodes up to this point. At $5, you get extra poetry readings that are not on the feed. Um, But no matter how much you donate, even a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I have a story that I can confidently say is one of the most mind-numbing little reads that I have encountered in many, many episodes of making this show. It is uh, In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. So it turns out there are seven volumes of this book, which is absolutely shocking to me because volume one, Swan's Way, which is what we're going to be falling asleep to tonight, is pretty long and it is seemingly meandering, dreamlike gibberish, which for our purposes, I could not ask for anything better. But the fact that he wrote seven full volumes um, in the same manner of the way he wrote the first one, it's uh, truly impressive. really is. It either had to require an immense amount of focus or whatever the complete opposite is of that, to write this much about this little. Anyways, um, it really is perfect to go to sleep to. It kind of reads like a dream does. It's very rambling and meandering and um, tangential, kind of nonsensical. On the page, some of the paragraphs... um, A sentence will last uh, half a page long, and yeah, it kind of jumps from idea to idea on this kind of dreamlike wonder. So, this is a really good one to doze off to. You're going to hear this um, first part of the first volume, Swan's Way, once 
and then it's going to repeat itself, and then it's going to repeat itself again, and you might not even know that it is doing that, which is exactly what we're hoping for. So without further ado tonight, doze off and catch some deep, deep sleep to In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. In Search of Lost Time Overture For a long time, I used to go to bed early. Sometimes when I had put out my candle, my eyes would close so quickly that I had not even time to say, I'm going to sleep. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time to go to sleep would awaken me. I would try to put away the book, which I imagined was still in my hands, and to blow out the light. I had been thinking all the time while I was asleep of what I had just been reading, but my thoughts had run into a channel of their own until I myself seemed actually to have become the subject of my book. A church, a quartet, the rivalry between Francois I and Charles V. This impression would persist for some moments after I was awake. It did not disturb my mind, but it lay like scales upon my eyes and prevented them from registering the fact that the candle was no longer burning. Then it would begin to seem unintelligible, as the thoughts of a former existence must be to a reincarnate spirit. The subject of my book would separate itself from me, leaving me free to choose whether I would form part of it or no. And at the same time, my sight would return, and I would be astonished to find myself in a state of darkness, pleasant and restful enough for the eyes, and even more, perhaps, for my mind, to which it appeared incomprehensible, without a cause, a matter dark indeed. I would ask myself what o'clock it could be. I could hear the whistling of trains, which now nearer and now farther off, punctuating the distance like the note of a bird in a forest, shooed me in perspective the deserted countryside which a traveler would be hurrying towards the nearest station. The path that he followed, being fixed forever in his memory by the general excitement due to being in a strange place, to doing unusual things, to the last words of conversation, to farewells exchanged beneath an unfamiliar lamp which echoed still in his ears amid the silence of the night and to the delightful prospect of being once again at home. 
I would lay my cheeks gently against the comfortable cheeks of my pillow, as plump and blooming as the cheeks of babyhood. Or I would strike a match to look at my watch. Nearly midnight. The hour when an invalid who has been obliged to start on a journey and to sleep in a strange hotel awakens in a moment of illness and sees with glad relief a streak of daylight shooing under his bedroom door. Oh, joy of joys, it is morning. The servants will be about in a minute. He can ring, and someone will come to look after him. The thought of being made comfortable gives him strength to endure his pain. He is certain he heard footsteps. They come nearer and then die away. The ray of light beneath his door is extinguished. It is midnight. Someone has turned out the gas. The last servant has gone to bed, and he must lie all night in agony with no one to bring him any help. I would fall asleep, and often I would be awake again for short snatches only, just long enough to hear the regular creaking of the wainscot, or to open my eyes to settle the shifting kaleidoscope of the darkness, to savor in an instantaneous flash of perception the sleep which lay heavy upon the furniture, the room, the whole surroundings of which I formed but an insignificant part, and whose unconsciousness I should very soon return to share. Of course, while I was asleep, I had returned without the least effort to an earlier stage in my life, now ever outgrown, and I come under the thrall of one of my childish terrors, such as that old terror of my great-uncle's pulling my curls, which was effectually dispelled on the day, the dawn of a new era to me, on which they were finally cropped from my head. I had forgotten that event during my sleep. I remembered it again immediately. I had succeeded in making myself wake up to escape my great-uncle's fingers. Still, as a measure of precaution, I would bury the whole of my head in the pillow before returning to the world of dreams. Sometimes, too, just as Eve was created from a rib of Adam, so a woman would come into existence while I was sleeping, conceived from some strain in the position of my limbs. Formed by the appetite, that I was on the point of gratifying. She it was, I imagine, who offered me that gratification. My body, conscious that its own warmth was permeating hers, would strive to become one with her, and I would awake. The rest of humanity seemed very remote in comparison with this woman whose company I had left but a moment ago. My cheek was still warm with her kiss. My body bent beneath the weight of hers. If, as would sometimes happen, she had the appearance of some woman whom I had known in waking hours, I would abandon myself altogether to the sole quest of her, 
like people who set out on a journey to see with their own eyes some city that they always long to visit and imagine that they can taste in reality what has charmed their fancy. And then gradually, the memory of her would dissolve and vanish until I had forgotten the maiden of my dream. When a man is asleep, he has in a circle around him the chain of the hours, the sequence of the years, the order of the heavenly host. Instinctively, when he awakes, he looks to these, and in an instant reads off his own position on the earth's surface and the amount of time that has elapsed during his slumbers. But this ordered procession is apt to grow confused and to break its ranks. Suppose that, towards morning, after a night of insomnia, sleep descends upon him while he is reading, in quite a different position that in which he normally goes to sleep. He has only to lift his arm to arrest the sun and turn it back in its course, and at the moment of waking, he will have no idea of the time, but will conclude that he has just gone to bed. Or suppose that he gets drowsy in some even more abnormal position, sitting in an armchair, say, after dinner, then the world will fall topsy-turvy from its orbit. The magic chair will carry him at full speed through time and space, and when he opens his eyes again, he will imagine that he went to sleep months earlier and in some far distant country. But for me, it was enough if, in my own bed, my sleep was so heavy as completely to relax my consciousness, for then I lost all sense of place in which I had gone to sleep. And when I awoke at midnight, not knowing where I was, I could not be sure at first who I was. I had only the most rudimentary sense of existence, such as may lurk and flicker in the depths of an animal's consciousness. I was more destitute of human qualities than a cave dweller. But then the memory, not yet of the place in which I was, but of various other places which I had lived, and might now very possibly be, would come like a robe let down from heaven to draw me up out of the abyss of not being, from which I could never have escaped by myself. In a flash I would traverse and surmount centuries of civilization, and out of a half-visualized succession of oil lamps, followed by shirts with turned-down collars, would put together by degrees the component parts of my ego. Perhaps the immobility of the things that surround us is forced upon them by our conviction that they are themselves and not anything else, and by the immobility of our conceptions of them. For it always happened that when I awoke like this and my mind struggled in an unsuccessful attempt to discover where I was, everything would be moving around me through the darkness. Things, places, years 
My body, still too heavy with sleep to move, would make an effort to construe the form which its tiredness took as an orientation of its various members, so as to induce from that where the wall lay and the furniture stood, to piece together and to give a name to the house in which it must be living. Its memory, the composite memory of its ribs, knees, and shoulder blades, offered it a whole series of rooms in which at one time or another slept, while the unseen walls kept changing, adapting themselves to the shape of each successive room that it remembered, whirling madly through the darkness. And even before my brain, lingering in consideration of when things had happened and of what they had looked like, I collected sufficient impressions to enable it to identify the room. Yeah, my body would recall from each room in succession what the bed was like, where the doors were, how daylight came in at the windows, whether there was a passage outside, what I had had in my mind when I went to sleep and had found there when I awoke. The stiffened side underneath my body would, for instance, been trying to fix its position, imagine itself to be lying, face to the wall, in a big bed with a canopy. And at once I would say to myself, Why, I must have gone to sleep after all, and Mama never came to say goodnight. For I was in the country with my grandfather, who died years ago, and my body, the side upon which I was lying, loyally preserving from the past an impression which my mind should never have forgotten, brought back before my eyes the glimmering flame of the nightlight in its bowl of bohemian glass, shaped like an arm and hung by chains from the ceiling, and the chimney piece of sienna marble in my bedroom at Combray, in my great-aunt's house, in those far distant days which, at the moment of waking, seemed present without being clearly dead, but would become plainer in a little while when I was properly awake. Then would come up the memory of a fresh position. The wall slid away in another direction. I was in my room with Mademoiselle de St. Louis house in the country. Good heavens, it must be ten o'clock. They will have finished dinner. I must have overslept myself in the little nap which I always take when I come in from my walk with Mademoiselle de St. Lou before dressing for the evening. For many years have now elapsed since the Combray days when coming in from the longest and latest walks I would still be in time to see the reflection of the sunset glowing in the panes of my bedroom window. This is a very different kind of existence at Tansonville, now with Mademoiselle St. Lou, and a different kind of pleasure that I now derive from taking walks only in the evenings, from visiting by moonlight the roads on which I used to play, as a child in the sunshine, while the bedroom, 
in which I shall presently fall asleep instead of dressing for dinner. From far off I can see it, as we return from our walk, with its lamp shining through the window, a solitary beacon in the night. These shifting and confused gusts of memory never lasted for more than a few seconds. It often happened that, in my spell of uncertainty to where I was, I did not distinguish the successive theories of which that uncertainty was composed any more than, when we watch a horse running, we isolate the successive positions of its body as they appear upon a bioscope. but I had seen first one, then another of the rooms in which I had slept during my life. And in the end, I would revisit them, all in the long course of my waking dream. Rooms in winter, where on going to bed, I would at once bury my head in a nest, built up out of the most diverse materials, the corner of my pillow, the top of my blankets, a piece of shawl, the edge of my bed, and a copy of an evening paper, all of which things I would contrive with the infinite patience of birds building their nests to cement into one hole, rooms where, in a keen frost, I would feel satisfaction of being shut in from the outer world, like the sea swallow which builds at the end of a dark tunnel and is kept warm by the surrounding earth, and where, the fire keeping in all night, I would sleep wrapped up, as it were, in a great cloak of snug and savory air, shot with the glow of the logs which would break out again in flame. In a sort of alcove without walls, a cave of warmth dug out of the heart of the room itself, the zone of heat whose boundaries were constantly shifting and altering in temperature as gusts of air ran across them to strike freshly upon my face. From the corners of the room, or from the parts near the window, or far from the fireplace which had therefore remained cold, or rooms in the summer where I would delight to feel myself a part of the warm evening, for the moonlight striking upon the half-open shutters would throw down to the foot of my bed its enchanted ladder, where I would fall asleep, as it might be in the open air, like a titmouse which the breeze keeps poised in the focus of a sunbeam. Or sometimes the Louis the Sixteenth room, so cheerful that I could never really feel happy, even on my first night in it. That room where the slender columns which slightly supported ceiling, would part ever so gracefully to indicate where the bed was and to keep it separate. Sometimes again that little room with the high ceiling, hollowed in the form of a pyramid out of two separate stories and partly walled in mahogany, in which from the first moment my mind was drugged by the unfamiliar scent of flowering grasses convinced of the hostility of the violet curtains and of the insolent difference of a clock that chattered at the top of its voice as though I were not there. While a strange and pitiless mirror with square feet 
which stood across one corner of the room, cleared for itself a site I had not looked to find tenanted in the quiet surroundings of my normal field of vision. That room in which my mind, forcing itself for hours on end to leave its moorings, to elongate itself upwards so as to take on the exact shape of the room, and to reach to the summit of that monstrous funnel, had passed so many anxious nights while my body lay stretched out in bed, my eyes staring upwards, my ears straining, my nostrils sniffing uneasily, and my heart beating, until custom had changed the color of the curtains, made the clock keep quiet, brought an expression of pity to the cruel, slanting face of the glass, disguised or even completely dispelled the scent of flowering grasses, and distinctly reduced the apparent loftiness of the ceiling. Custom, that skillful but unhurrying manager who begins by torturing the mind for weeks on end with her provisional arrangements, whom the mind, for all that, is unfortunate in discovering, for without the help of the custom, it would never contrive by its own efforts to make any room seem habitable. In Search of Lost Time Overture For a long time, I used to go to bed early. Sometimes when I had put out my candle, my eyes would close so quickly that I had not even time to say, I'm going to sleep. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time to go to sleep would awaken me. I would try to put away the book, which I imagined was still in my hands and to blow out the light. I have been thinking all the time while I was asleep of what I had just been reading, but my thoughts had run into a channel of their own until I myself seemed actually to have become the subject of my book. A church, a quartet, the rivalry between Francois I and Charles V. This impression would persist for some moments after I was awake. It did not disturb my mind, but it lay like scales upon my eyes and prevented them from registering the fact that the candle was no longer burning. Then it would begin to seem unintelligible, as the thoughts of a former existence must be to a reincarnate spirit. The subject of my book would separate itself from me, leaving me free to choose whether I would form part of it or no. And at the same time, my sight would return, and I would be astonished to find myself in a state of darkness, pleasant and restful enough for the eyes, and even more, perhaps, for my mind, to which it appeared incomprehensible, without a cause, a matter dark indeed. I would ask myself what o'clock it could be. I could hear the whistling of trains, which now nearer and now farther off, punctuating the distance like the note of a bird in a forest, shooed me in perspective the deserted countryside which a traveler would be hurrying towards the nearest station. The path that he followed, being fixed forever in his memory, 
by the general excitement due to being in a strange place, to doing unusual things, to the last words of conversation, the farewells exchanged beneath an unfamiliar lamp which echoed still in his ears amid the silence of the night, and to the delightful prospect of being once again at home. I would lay my cheeks gently against the comfortable cheeks of my pillow, as plump and blooming as the cheeks of babyhood. Or I would strike a match to look at my watch. Nearly midnight. The hour when an invalid, who has been obliged to start on a journey and to sleep in a strange hotel, awakens in a moment of illness and sees with glad relief a streak of daylight shooing under his bedroom door. Oh, joy of joys, it is morning. The servants will be about in a minute. He can ring, and someone will come to look after him. The thought of being made comfortable gives him strength to endure his pain. He is certain he heard footsteps. They come nearer and then die away. The ray of light beneath his door is extinguished. It is midnight. Someone has turned out the gas. The last servant has gone to bed, and he must lie all night in agony with no one to bring him any help. I would fall asleep, and often I would be awake again for short snatches only, just long enough to hear the regular creaking of the wainscot or to open my eyes to settle the shifting kaleidoscope of the darkness, to savor in an instantaneous flash of perception the sleep which lay heavy upon the furniture, the room, the whole surroundings of which I formed but an insignificant part, and whose unconsciousness I should very soon return to share. Of course, while I was asleep, I had returned without the least effort to an earlier stage in my life, now ever outgrown, and I come under the thrall of one of my childish terrors, such as that old terror of my great-uncle's pulling my curls, which was effectually dispelled on the day, the dawn of a new era to me, on which they were finally cropped from my head. I had forgotten that event during my sleep, I remembered it again immediately. I had succeeded in making myself wake up to escape my great-uncle's fingers. Still, as a measure of precaution, I would bury the whole of my head in the pillow before returning to the world of dreams. Sometimes, too, just as Eve was created from a rib of Adam, so a woman would come into existence while I was sleeping, conceived from some strain in the position of my limbs. Formed by the appetite that I was on the point of gratifying, she it was, I imagine, who offered me that gratification. My body, conscious that its own warmth was permeating hers, would strive to become one with her, and I would awake. The rest of humanity seemed very remote in comparison with this woman whose company I had left but a moment ago. 
My cheek was still warm with her kiss, my body bent beneath the weight of hers. If, as would sometimes happen, she had the appearance of some woman whom I had known in waking hours, I would abandon myself altogether to the sole quest of her, like people who set out on a journey to see with their own eyes some city that they always longed to visit and imagine that they can taste in reality what has charmed their fancy. And then gradually, the memory of her would dissolve and vanish until I had forgotten the maiden of my dream. When a man is asleep, he has in a circle around him the chain of the hours, the sequence of the years, the order of the heavenly host. Instinctively, when he awakes, he looks to these, and in an instant reads off his own position on the earth's surface and the amount of time that has elapsed during his slumbers. But this ordered procession is apt to grow confused and to break its ranks. Suppose that, towards morning, after a night of insomnia, sleep descends upon him while he is reading, in quite a different position that in which he normally goes to sleep. He has only to lift his arm to arrest the sun and turn it back in its course, and at the moment of waking, he will have no idea of the time, but will conclude that he has just gone to bed. Or suppose that he gets drowsy in some even more abnormal position, sitting in an armchair, say, after dinner, then the world will fall topsy-turvy from its orbit. The magic chair will carry him at full speed through time and space, and when he opens his eyes again, he will imagine that he went to sleep months earlier and in some far distant country. But for me, it was enough if, in my own bed, my sleep was so heavy as completely to relax my consciousness, for then I lost all sense of place in which I had gone to sleep. And when I awoke at midnight, not knowing where I was, I could not be sure at first who I was. I had only the most rudimentary sense of existence, such as may lurk and flicker in the depths of an animal's consciousness. I was more destitute of human qualities than the cave dweller. But then the memory, not yet of the place in which I was, but of various other places which I had lived, and might now very possibly be, would come like a robe let down from heaven to draw me up out of the abyss of not being, from which I could never have escaped by myself. In a flash, I would traverse and surmount centuries of civilization, and out of a half-visualized succession of oil lamps, followed by shirts with turned-down collars, would put together by degrees the component parts of my ego. Perhaps the immobility of the things that surround us is forced upon them by our conviction that they are themselves and not anything else. 
and by the immobility of our conceptions of them. For it always happened that when I awoke like this, and my mind struggled in an unsuccessful attempt to discover where I was, everything would be moving around me through the darkness. Things, places, years. My body, still too heavy with sleep to move, would make an effort to construe the form which its tiredness took as an orientation of its various members, so as to induce from that where the wall lay and the furniture stood, to piece together and to give a name to the house in which it must be living. Its memory, the composite memory of its ribs, knees, and shoulder blades, offered it a whole series of rooms in which at one time or another slept, while the unseen walls kept changing, adapting themselves to the shape of each successive room that it remembered, whirling madly through the darkness. And even before my brain, lingering in consideration of when things had happened and of what they had looked like, I collected sufficient impressions to enable it to identify the room. It, my body, would recall from each room in succession what the bed was like, where the doors were, how daylight came in at the windows, whether there was a passage outside, what I had had in my mind when I went to sleep, and had found there when I awoke. The stiffened side underneath my body would, for instance, in trying to fix its position, imagine itself to be lying, face to the wall, in a big bed with a canopy. And at once I would say to myself, Why, I must have gone to sleep after all, and Mama never came to say goodnight for I was in the country with my grandfather, who died years ago, and my body, the side upon which I was lying, loyally preserving from the past an impression which my mind should never have forgotten, brought back before my eyes the glimmering flame of the nightlight in its bowl of bohemian glass, shaped like an urn, and hung by chains from the ceiling and the chimney piece of sienna marble in my bedroom at Combray, in my great-aunt's house, in those far distant days which, at the moment of waking, seemed present without being clearly denned, but would become plainer in a little while when I was properly awake. Then would come up the memory of a fresh position. The wall slid away in another direction. I was in my room with Mademoiselle de St. Louis' house in the country. Good heavens, it must be ten o'clock. They will have finished dinner. I must have overslept myself in the little nap which I always take when I come in from my walk with Mademoiselle de St. Louis before dressing for the evening. For many years have now elapsed since the Combray days, when coming in from the longest and latest walks, I would still be in time to see the reflection of the sunset glowing in the panes of my bedroom window. 
This is a very different kind of existence at Tansonville, now with Mademoiselle St. Lou, and a different kind of pleasure that I now derive from taking walks only in the evenings, from visiting by moonlight the roads on which I used to play, as a child in the sunshine, while the bedroom, in which I shall presently fall asleep instead of dressing for dinner, from far off I can see it, as we return from our walk, with its lamp shining through the window, a solitary beacon in the night. These shifting and confused gusts of memory never lasted for more than a few seconds. It often happened that, in my spell of uncertainty to where I was, I did not distinguish the successive theories of which that uncertainty was composed any more than when we watch a horse running, we isolate the successive positions of its body as they appear upon a bioscope. But I had seen first one, then another of the rooms in which I had slept during my life. And in the end I would revisit them, all in the long course of my waking dream. Rooms in winter, where on going to bed, I would at once bury my head in a nest, built up out of the most diverse materials, the corner of my pillow, the top of my blankets, a piece of shawl, the edge of my bed, and a copy of an evening paper, all of which things I would contrive, with the infinite patience of birds building their nests, to cement into one hole, rooms where, in a keen frost, I would feel a satisfaction of being shut in from the outer world, like the sea swallow which builds at the end of a dark tunnel and is kept warm by the surrounding earth, and where, the fire keeping in all night, I would sleep wrapped up, as it were, in a great cloak of snug and savory air, shot with the glow of the logs which would break out again in flame. In a sort of alcove without walls, a cave of warmth dug out of the heart of the room itself, the zone of heat whose boundaries were constantly shifting and altering in temperature as gusts of air ran across them, to strike freshly upon my face. From the corners of the room, or from the parts near the window, or far from the fireplace which had therefore remained cold, or rooms in the summer, or I would delight to feel myself a part of the warm evening, where the moonlight striking upon the half-open shutters would throw down to the foot of my bed its enchanted ladder, where I would fall asleep, as it might be in the open air, like a titmouse which the breeze keeps poised in the focus of a sunbeam. Or sometimes the Louis the Sixteenth room, so cheerful that I could never really feel happy, even on my first night in it. That room where the slender columns, which slightly supported ceiling, would part, ever so gracefully, to indicate where the bed was and to keep it separate. Sometimes again that little room with the high ceiling, hollowed in the form of a pyramid out of two separate stories, and partly walled in mahogany, in which from the first moment 
My mind was drugged by the unfamiliar scent of flowering grasses, convinced of the hostility of the violet curtains and of the insolent difference of a clock that chattered at the top of its voice as though I were not there. While a strange and pitiless mirror with square feet which stood across one corner of the room cleared for itself a sight I had not looked to find tenanted in the quiet surroundings of my normal field of vision. That room in which my mind, forcing itself for hours on end to leave its moorings, to elongate itself upwards so as to take on the exact shape of the room and to reach to the summit of that monstrous funnel had passed so many anxious nights while my body lay stretched out in bed, my eyes staring upwards, my ears straining, my nostrils sniffing uneasily, and my heart beating, until custom had changed the color of the curtains, made the clock keep quiet, brought an expression of pity to the cruel, slanting face of the glass, disguised or even completely dispelled the scent of flowering grasses, and distinctly reduced the apparent loftiness of the ceiling. Custom, that skillful but unhurrying manager who begins by torturing the mind for weeks on end with her provisional arrangements, whom the mind, for all that, is unfortunate in discovering. For without the help of the custom, it would never contrive by its own efforts to make any room seem habitable. In Search of Lost Time Overture For a long time, I used to go to bed early. Sometimes when I had put out my candle, my eyes would close so quickly that I had not even time to say, I'm going to sleep. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time to go to sleep would awaken me. I would try to put away the book, which I imagined was still in my hands and to blow out the light. I have been thinking all the time while I was asleep of what I had just been reading, but my thoughts had run into a channel of their own until I myself seemed actually to have become the subject of my book. A church, a quartet, the rivalry between Francois I and Charles V. This impression would persist for some moments after I was awake. It did not disturb my mind, but it lay like scales upon my eyes and prevented them from registering the fact that the candle was no longer burning. Then it would begin to seem unintelligible, as the thoughts of a former existence must be to a reincarnate spirit. The subject of my book would separate itself from me, leaving me free to choose whether I would form part of it or no. And at the same time, my sight would return, and I would be astonished to find myself in a state of darkness, pleasant and restful enough for the eyes, and even more, perhaps, for my mind, to which it appeared incomprehensible, without a cause, a matter dark indeed. I would ask myself what o'clock it could be, 
I could hear the whistling of trains, which now nearer and now farther off, punctuating the distance like the note of a bird in a forest, shooed me in perspective the deserted countryside which a traveler would be hurrying towards the nearest station. The path that he followed, being fixed forever in his memory by the general excitement due to being in a strange place, to doing unusual things, to the last words of conversation, the farewells exchanged beneath an unfamiliar lamp which echoed still in his ears amid the silence of the night, and to the delightful prospect of being once again at home. I would lay my cheeks gently against the comfortable cheeks of my pillow, as plump and blooming as the cheeks of babyhood. Or I would strike a match to look at my watch. Nearly midnight. The hour when an invalid, who has been obliged to start on a journey and to sleep in a strange hotel, awakens in a moment of illness and sees with glad relief a streak of daylight shooing under his bedroom door. Oh, joy of joys, it is morning. The servants will be about in a minute. He can ring, and someone will come to look after him. The thought of being made comfortable gives him strength to endure his pain. He is certain he heard footsteps. They come nearer and then die away. The ray of light beneath his door is extinguished. It is midnight. Someone has turned out the gas. The last servant has gone to bed, and he must lie all night in agony with no one to bring him any help. I would fall asleep, and often I would be awake again for short snatches only, just long enough to hear the regular creaking of the wainscot, or to open my eyes to settle the shifting kaleidoscope of the darkness, to savor in an instantaneous flash of perception the sleep which lay heavy upon the furniture, the room, the whole surroundings of which I formed but an insignificant part, and whose unconsciousness I should very soon return to share. Of course, while I was asleep, I had returned without the least effort to an earlier stage of my life, now ever outgrown, and I come under the thrall of one of my childish terrors, such as that old terror of my great-uncle's pulling my curls, which was effectually dispelled on the day, the dawn of a new era to me, on which they were finally cropped from my head. I had forgotten that event during my sleep. I remembered it again immediately. I had succeeded in making myself wake up to escape my great-uncle's fingers. Still, as a measure of precaution, I would bury the hold of my head in the pillow before returning to the world of dreams. Sometimes, too, just as Eve was created from a rib of Adam, so a woman would come into existence while I was sleeping, conceived from some strain in the position of my limbs. Formed by the appetite that I was on the point of gratifying, she it was, I imagine, 
who offered me that gratification. My body, conscious that its own warmth was permeating hers, would strive to become one with her, and I would awake. The rest of humanity seemed very remote in comparison with this woman whose company I had left but a moment ago. My cheek was still warm with her kiss. My body bent beneath the weight of hers. If, as would sometimes happen, she had the appearance of some woman whom I had known in waking hours, I would abandon myself altogether to the sole quest of her like people who set out on a journey to see with their own eyes some city that they always long to visit and imagine that they can taste in reality what has charmed their fancy. And then gradually, the memory of her would dissolve and vanish until I had forgotten the maiden of my dream. When a man is asleep, he has in a circle around him the chain of the hours, the sequence of the years, the order of the heavenly host. Instinctively, when he awakes, he looks to these, and in an instant reads off his own position on the earth's surface and the amount of time that has elapsed during his slumbers. But this ordered procession is apt to grow confused and to break its ranks. Suppose that, towards morning, after a night of insomnia, sleep descends upon him while he is reading. In quite a different position, that in which he normally goes to sleep, he has only to lift his arm to arrest the sun and turn it back in its course. And at the moment of waking, he will have no idea of the time, but will conclude that he has just gone to bed. Or suppose that he gets drowsy in some even more abnormal position, sitting in an armchair, say, after dinner. Then the world will fall topsy-turvy from its orbit. The magic chair will carry him at full speed through time and space. And when he opens his eyes again, he will imagine that he went to sleep months earlier and in some far distant country. But for me... It was enough if, in my own bed, my sleep was so heavy as completely to relax my consciousness, for then I lost all sense of place in which I had gone to sleep. And when I awoke at midnight, not knowing where I was, I could not be sure at first who I was. I had only the most rudimentary sense of existence such as may lurk and flicker in the depths of an animal's consciousness. I was more destitute of human qualities than the cave dweller. But then the memory, not yet of the place in which I was, but of various other places which I had lived, and might now very possibly be, would come like a robe let down from heaven to draw me up out of the abyss of not being from which I could never have escaped by myself. In a flash, I would traverse and surmount centuries of civilization, and out of a half-visualized succession of oil lamps, 
followed by shirts with turned-down collars, would put together by degrees the component parts of my ego. Perhaps the immobility of the things that surround us is forced upon them by our conviction that they are themselves and not anything else, and by the immobility of our conceptions of them. For it always happened that when I awoke like this and my mind struggled in an unsuccessful attempt to discover where I was, everything would be moving around me through the darkness. Things, places, years. My body, still too heavy with sleep to move, would make an effort to construe the form which its tiredness took as an orientation of its various members so as to induce from that where the wall lay and the furniture stood, to piece together and to give a name to the house in which it must be living. Its memory, a composite memory of its ribs, knees, and shoulder blades, offered it a whole series of rooms in which at one time or another slept, while the unseen walls kept changing, adapting themselves to the shape of each successive room that I remember, whirling madly through the darkness. And even before my brain, lingering in consideration of when things had happened and of what they had looked like, I collected sufficient impressions to enable it to identify the room. It, my body, would recall from each room in succession what the bed was like, where the doors were, how daylight came in at the windows, whether there was a passage outside, what I had had in my mind when I went to sleep and had found there when I awoke. The stiffened side underneath my body would, for instance, in trying to fix its position, imagine itself to be lying face to the wall in a big bed with a canopy. And at once I would say to myself, Why, I must have gone to sleep after all, and Mama never came to say goodnight. For I was in the country with my grandfather, who died years ago, and my body, the side upon which I was lying, loyally preserving from the past an impression which my mind should never have forgotten, brought back before my eyes the glimmering flame of the nightlight in its bowl of bohemian glass, shaped like an arm and hung by chains from the ceiling, and the chimney piece of sienna marble in my bedroom at Combray, in my great-aunt's house, in those far distant days which, at the moment of waking, seemed present without being clearly dead, but would become plainer in a little while when I was properly awake. Then would come up the memory of a fresh position. The wall slid away in another direction. I was in my room with Mademoiselle de St. Louis' house in the country. Good heavens, it must be ten o'clock. They will have finished dinner. I must have overslept myself in the little nap which I always take when I come in from my walk with Mademoiselle de Saint-Loup, 
for dressing for the evening. For many years have now elapsed since the Combray days, when coming in from the longest and latest walks, I would still be in time to see the reflection of the sunset glowing in the panes of my bedroom window. This is a very different kind of existence at Tansonville, now with Mademoiselle St. Lou, and a different kind of pleasure that I now derive from taking walks only in the evenings, from visiting by moonlight the roads on which I used to play, as a child in the sunshine, while the bedroom, in which I shall presently fall asleep instead of dressing for dinner, from far off I can see it, as we return from our walk, with its lamp shining through the window, a solitary beacon in the night. These shifting and confused gusts of memory never lasted for more than a few seconds. It often happened that, in my spell of uncertainty to where I was, I did not distinguish the successive theories of which that uncertainty was composed any more than when we watch a horse running, we isolate the successive positions of its body as they appear upon a bioscope. But I had seen first one, then another of the rooms in which I had slept during my life, and in the end I would revisit them, all in the long course of my waking dream. Rooms in winter, where on going to bed, I would at once bury my head in a nest, built up out of the most diverse materials, the corner of my pillow, the top of my blankets, a piece of shawl, the edge of my bed, and a copy of an evening paper, all of which things I would contrive, with the infinite patience of birds building their nests, to cement into one hole, rooms where, in a keen frost, I would feel a satisfaction of being shut in from the outer world, like the sea swallow which builds at the end of a dark tunnel and is kept warm by the surrounding earth, and where, the fire keeping in all night, I would sleep wrapped up, as it were, in a great cloak of snug and savory air, shot with the glow of the logs which would break out again in flame. In a sort of alcove without walls, a cave of warmth dug out of the heart of the room itself, the zone of heat whose boundaries were constantly shifting and altering in temperature as gusts of air ran across them, to strike freshly upon my face. From the corners of the room, or from the parts near the window, or far from the fireplace which had therefore remained cold, or rooms in the summer, where I would delight to feel myself a part of the warm evening, where the moonlight striking upon the half-open shutters would throw down to the foot of my bed its enchanted ladder, where I would fall asleep, as it might be in the open air, like a titmouse which the breeze keeps poised in the focus of a sunbeam. Or sometimes the Louis the Sixteenth room, so cheerful that I could never really feel happy, even on my first night in it. That room where the slender columns, which slightly supported ceiling 
would part ever so gracefully to indicate where the bed was and to keep it separate. Sometimes again that little room with the high ceiling, hollowed in the form of a pyramid out of two separate stories and partly walled in mahogany, in which from the first moment my mind was drugged by the unfamiliar scent of flowering grasses, convinced of the hostility of the violet curtains and of the insolent difference of a clock that chattered at the top of its voice as though I were not there. While a strange and pitiless mirror with square feet which stood across one corner of the room cleared for itself a sight I had not looked to find tenanted in the quiet surroundings of my normal field of vision. That room in which my mind forcing itself for hours on end to leave its moorings, to elongate itself upwards so as to take on the exact shape of the room and to reach to the summit of that monstrous funnel had passed so many anxious nights while my body lay stretched out in bed, my eyes staring upwards, my ears straining, my nostrils sniffing uneasily, and my heart beating, until custom had changed the color of the curtains made the clock keep quiet, brought an expression of pity to the cruel, slanting face of the glass, disguised or even completely dispelled the scent of flowering grasses, and distinctly reduced the apparent loftiness of the ceiling. Custom, that skillful but unhurrying manager who begins by torturing the mind for weeks on end with her provisional arrangements, whom the mind, for all that, is unfortunate in discovering. For without the help of the custom, it would never contrive, by its own efforts, to make any room seem habitable. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.